We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life, the publisher, the University of Nebraska Press. And please join me as we say welcome to the clubhouse to the author, Mort Zachter. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for coming, especially uh, on a night like this. And uh, I think a good place to start is, before we get into the actual book, is the cover. Uh, because I have a question about the cover. And I know many times authors have nothing to do with the cover design, even the title of the book they, they, they don't control. So I don't know if you have control over this or not, but I personally found it fascinating that, and I loved it, that the, uh, the cover, the front cover of the book is Gil Hodges in the Mets dugout as manager, with a certain type of a look, uh, which obviously we'll get into. And on the back is Gil Hodges in a Mets uniform, smiling. Uh, so my question is, if you had anything to do with the cover, how did these two, why were these the two photos that ended up on the cover? One of the nice things about working with Nebraska Press is they give the author quite a bit of input into things like this, the cover photo, and what will appear on the back. In this case, I selected that photo because I felt it, it first of all, I wanted a Mets image of Hodgers because I felt from a, a marketing perspective, it would maybe sell to younger people rather than, um, you know, you're looking for market share and there are more people around that remember the 69 Mets than the 55 Dodgers, unfortunately. <laughs> but this summarized uh, Hodges' look in the dugout where his players knew you did not walk in front of Gil Hodges during the game because his focus was so intense. It, it disturbed him and this image uh, captures that. And one of the nice things about this that I only found out last week, I am now Facebook friends with Gil Hodge's daughter, Irene. And she sent me an email that this was one of her favorite photos oh. of her father. So that made me feel good. Now, to offset that seriousness, which is the face that Gil Hodges really showed the world, even though he had a really good, wry sense of humor, very could be very cutting if he wanted to, but he liked to tell jokes. He liked to laugh. The, this back image is one of the last photos ever taken of Gil Hodges. It was taken by uh, a fellow named Conlon, who was from Petersburg, Indiana. He owned a dry cleaners there. And during Hodge's career in the 1950s, this guy would literally put in his window a piece of cardboard, updated each for each Dodgers game, Hodge's current batting average, home runs, and RBIs. So this fellow went to visit Gil Hodge's in uh, late March of 1972. And he and a couple other guys from Petersburg, they were leaving. 
And Hodges, for some reason, remembered that this fellow liked statistics and had put his name up in the window of his place. He came clopping across the parking lot in his cleats to bring that year's press guide and give it to this guy as a thank you. And they said, wait, wait, Gil, we'll take your picture, we'll take your picture. And there he was, sticking his face in the car window, and that's the back image. Nebraska originally told me that they never put a photo on the back, but I think I bugged them enough that they put it in, so I felt good about that. Well, in this case, uh, in some ways, you can judge a book by its cover because it's, it's beautiful... The story behind it is beautiful, and the book is, is first-rate. The book is uh, worthy of the subject. You did an amazing job. Thank you. And before we get into some of the other aspects further, just a question is, I, I know this had to take a, a, this was not a six-month project, so maybe if you could just talk a little bit about what went into it, what brought you to it, right. and then my, the other question to add on to that is, when George Vesey was here with a Stan Musial book, who was his guy, uh, one of the things that George mentioned was he was a little nervous about the research, figuring he's going to, at some point, he's going to come across something that he's not going to want to have heard about his guy. And he never did. And so that's, those are my, some questions to get us going. Just good. Two for one question. That's, <laughs> that's great. Um, okay. I grew up, as I say in the book, in Brooklyn. I lived as a little kid in the 1960s, a few blocks away from Hodger's house on Bedford Avenue. He was the only star player of the Dodgers who remained in Brooklyn after they moved to Los Angeles. So for me, who was born just a few months after the Dodgers' last game, I would have been a huge Dodgers fan. I just know that. It, it just always made me feel good that he was there. Uh, And then he died very young, only 47. And then through, as I matured, I began to really understand the kind of person he was, self-effacing, as opposed to most athletes who have been the best player on the Little League team, in their high school team, in their American Legion team, in their college team. He didn't have an attitude. I think one of the best lines uh, was from Arnold Haino, who said, uh, he was a well-known writer of that era, he said, when you interviewed Gil Hodges, you interviewed a person, not a personality. And, okay, so uh, that basically uh, was why I came to the book. And then I've been following the litany of this whole Hall of Fame deal for decades. And I just said to myself, whether he gets in or not, I think there's new generations of young people, I'm glad to see there's some younger people here tonight, who will know that an athlete doesn't have to beat his wife or gamble on baseball or do steroids or I don't know, if he ever went to New England, I don't think Gil Hodges would have deflated any footballs. (laughs) But can be decent and self-effacing and it's not all about him. And... uh, so that's why I wrote it. And in terms of discovering stuff, that's very interesting because things like when I, uh, Gil Hodges Jr. helped me because he required a signature of a family member to get Gil Hodges' war records, and he did that for me, and I was very appreciative. And I remember I called up the people in St. Louis to get it, and the, uh, <coughs> I don't know, I guess it's rural branches of the military, but Hodges was a Marine on Okinawa. 
And the woman said to me, are you sure you want this? I, she just assumed that I was a family member. And I said, yes, I'd like it. She says, you know, a lot of people get this stuff and everything is in here. If, if your dad had a social problem and a kind of social disease, it's going to be in here. And I said, okay, you can send it to me. Well, I just didn't have those kind of issues. He didn't really have any issues. So in terms of, uh, there was no uh, huge thing that came up you know, uh, uh, you know, Gil Hodges was not a vampire slayer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the most, it was interesting. I was really hoping when I spoke with Sandy Koufax, and Sandy Koufax was Hodges' teammate beginning in 1955, and he was a young kid, 19. I know that a lot of the Dodger players, of the star players, really kind of gave Sandy Koufax the, the cold shoulder because he was a bonus baby and they felt that every man on the roster counted, especially if they would get to the World Series with the Yankees. You never know about injuries. And, and they were also in that world probably a little bit jealous of uh, the money that Koufax was get, getting paid. And I was hoping that uh, Hodges in that first group would have been more... You know, he would be different. But no, he was somewhat similar. Sandy Koufax, when I spoke with him, said, no, until he, I think he threw a, a really great game that somewhere late in that first season. After that, everybody was his buddy. But up until then, they all were not that communicative with him. The black players on the team were friendlier with him than, than the stars. So that was, but that's really, he was no different than the other star players. So I just, based on something you just said, I, I want to bring it up. You just kind of threw out, when I spoke to Sandy Koufax, I know he doesn't necessarily, uh, I would assume, not, uh, he may not answer a lot of telephone calls when people want to talk to him about. No, he calls you. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe just talk about that for a second. Um, when you do a, a book like this, you have to talk to a lot of these old ball players to get first-hand information. Most of them don't do the internet. So what I did was I <coughs> got some addresses of where they live, and I would mail them, you know, old hard copy with a return envelope pre-stamp. So I tried Koufax twice. He's got an address in Vera Beach. No answer. You know, and now half a year has gone by. I said, let me try again. And in this case, I'm lucky I had a, a book written before this one. And I said, maybe he thinks I'm a crank or something. So I sent a copy of my first book in the same letter again. And this was over the summertime. I hear nothing. And then my phone rang that October, October 10th, um, I forget what year, 2010, 2011. And... Uh, I was sitting in... Not that uh, you remember the date or anything. <laughs> so, well, it's, you know, when you annotate the book, right, right. I made what he told me in that conversation one of the epigraphs in the front because the one thing, like you mentioned before about title, I fought with Nebraska about the title. I wanted to call this book Gil Hodges' Mensch in large part based upon what S Sandy Koufax told me in this conversation when he, he, he called me up uh, surprisingly in October because I found out what happened was he probably does not live in Florida in the summertime and has a place further north. So he came back to Vero Beach and he opened up his mail and then he got this package for me with the book and he, he called up. Koufax, from what I understand, and I spoke with Jane Levy, who's kind of like the guru of uh, trying to understand Sandy Koufax, she told me that the only people that he that he 
she knows he's spoken with is uh, myself and there's a fellow who's writing a book about Maury Wills. So it's classic. Guys stick up for their teammates. These were two of, of, of uh, Koufax's teammates and guys that he loved. So he was going to talk and uh, Levy was actually upset because when she wrote the book about Mantle, Koufax would not give her an interview to talk about Mantle. So, uh, so there you go. So I got to talk to uh, Sandy Koufax um, and what Koufax told me, and, and really what the theme of the book is, Koufax said um, Gil Hodge was not only a good player and manager, he was um, a special human being. And the definition of this word mensch, which is a Yiddish word, which is a combination of Hebrew and, and German, means exactly that, a, really a special person, a really nice guy. Uh, we went back and forth with the title. I wanted the title to be The Team Came First, The Life of Gil Hodges. They didn't like that. And we had to decide on the title before this past December when this last vote came up with the Veterans Committee. And they suggested this. And I said, you know what? When you say Gil Hodges, the Hall of Fame life, if he gets in the Hall of Fame, well, great. That's what people are associated with. But what it was to me was what the epigraph is in the book, which is a quote from Pericles, a, a Greek uh, statesman. What we leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. And what I tried to show in this book, in, in as many chapters and many places as I could, is the impact Hodges had on people that he played with, the impact they had on him, and then in the uh, epilogue to try and give a little bit of a summary uh, as to what happened. So I hope that answers your, your uh, question. Sounds like the book is not big on statistics. <laughs> no, I, I got some statistics in there, but I try and make it so that the narrative flows and put as much stuff as I can in the back. There's the, the key statistics you need to know for Hodges are in there, but I think I tried to write about as best I could, what kind of person? And anyway, excuse me, excuse me. We're, we're just uh, we're in a little podcast time frame here. When we get to, excuse me, when we get to the uh, question and answers, the Q and A part of this, I'm sure people are going to want to bring up the statistics, the Hall of Fame. Why? Why not? I'm not going to get into that. Uh, okay, we're going to. To me, there's more interesting things to talk about okay. for our part. I'm with you. But when we get to that part, you can ask whatever you want in in a question form. So for now, just to continue this part of the discussion, in the uh, in the prologue, so we're not really even into chapter one yet, the prologue is all about the famous shoe polish incident in the, ninth, in the World Series. Mm -hmm. uh, I would assume most people here know it. Maybe you want to do a little mini summary of what it is, but then why did you just, why is that the prologue? Uh, okay. The, the, game, 1969 World Series. The Mets are leading the Baltimore Orioles three games to one. The Orioles had won 109, 109 games that season. They were one of the great teams of that era. They had two first ballot Hall of Fame players on their team. The Mets had only recently turned it around under Hodgers' leadership. They basically, for, for at least half the everyday players, were really just platoon. Uh, he, he didn't have any, you know, players to compare on a day-to-day -day basis. They had some remarkable pitchers on that team. So the Mets were trailing in the game, uh, and it really did not look good. They could not touch Dave McNally, and basically 
uh, a ball hit Cleon Jones in the foot. Everyone in the ballpark, except for the umpire, saw that the ball hit Cleon Jones's foot. He should have been awarded for his base, but instead the umpire said no. It Lou Demuro. He said no. He didn't see it hit him. And what happened? That ball bounced all the way into the Mets dugout. What happened there? Uh, remains one of the great 20th century mysteries, as I say, <laughs> in the book. And basically, I think most likely one of two things happened. Either Hodges in- instructed someone, and Jerry Kuzman claims that he is the one to rub the ball against their shoe, that he could bring it out there and show it, or he might have been trained by the very wise Casey Stengel to have a stash of balls that already had been shoe polished and ready and available. So... That that is the situation with the balance. So that's no, so that that's what happened. Why is that the prologue to the to it, this it, book? I, well, it's the prologue because it goes against Hodge's character. You also want to start a book, but they call in media rest to get people's attention. It's really the you know the middle of his you know it's towards the end of his life, but. Uh, you don't necessarily start a baseball book, you know. Gil Hodges was born, you know, at April 1924 in, you know, Princeton, Indiana. It gets people interested. You want to try and hook them so they'll read the next sentence. Uh, so that's why it starts there. But it also shows that Hodges, even though he was this, this honest guy who was really admired by umpires, did not like to show them up, only argued a call when he thought he was right. He would. He was an intense competitor, even though you didn't see it. You know, he wasn't out there screaming at umpires. But he wanted to win, and he would do whatever it takes to win. And in this case, uh, you might argue that it was cheating. Depends on your definition of cheating. But the end result was, uh, Cleon Jones was awarded first base, and the rest, as they say, is history. Well, from a uh Writer's perspective, you did exactly what you set out to do because you you got my attention immediately, and uh, you brought me right into it. It was I felt like it's when you go see a great movie, in the first two minutes you know it's a great movie basically, and then that's how I felt from the prologue. Uh, so before we get to some questions, I just have a couple little tidbits scattered in the book that I'd, I'd like to ask you about. Uh, one which goes back to something you had said earlier indirectly with Sandy Koufax. Uh, everyone knows that Pee Wee Reese was the captain of the team. But when they, had, when they finally won the World Series and they are determining World Series shares, Gil Hodges uh, had yes. a bit more to do with it than the captain of the team. This I got from an interview with Carl Erskine. Carl Erskine, for people who don't know, was a pitcher on the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a very good pitcher. He unfortunately hurt his arm fairly early in his career, and he never knew from game to game if he was going to be really good or not. And he told me the surprising thing was, as you point out, back then the World Series share meant a lot to the players. This is decades before free agency, and this could be anywhere from 10 to 30% of their salary for the year. Uh, And it was fierce, because the more shares you uh, gave people, the less money each player was going to receive, and the vote had to be unanimous. Now, logically, Pee Wee Reese, who had a unique ability from everything I've, I've read and heard and <coughs> talking with the few players I spoke to, 
Pee Wee Reese could tell you something negative about yourself, but he said it in such a way that he was charming and he could get away with it. But he decided for running this meeting, Hodges was the better one, and he let Hodges run it. So what happened was, as Carl Erskine said to me, you had some players who were pretty, uh, they were less giving than others, but what would happen was Hodges would give them the look. And if Hodges gave them the look, even a tough guy like Carl Farilla would back down. And Hodges was usually very generous. And I think I, I bring up a point. There was one player, um, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but he was from Puerto Rico. He had only been in the, with the uh, Dodgers that season for only a part of the season, though he was pretty crucial uh, in it. And um, Amaros. Sammy Amaros. Cuban? Yeah, Amaros was Cuban. No, then it wasn't Amaros. Chico Fernandez? No, I think, it, I think, no, no, I think it was one of the people in Puerto Rico, because I remember reading, when I read the book about Clemente, he was one of the, uh, you know, major figures in, but in, in any case, Amaros, I don't remember the no, name. No, no, I don't think it was Amaros, I'm blanking on uh, uh, who it was, but that said, Hodges was, uh, he was colorblind, he didn't care black or white, uh, from everyone I spoke to, the guy was without prejudice. The Mets pointed out in a time when, you know, there was a lot of social unrest, the Mets had no problems in terms of that. So he was equal, and, and when it came to World Series year, he didn't care. If someone contributed, he felt they should get it, and uh, you didn't want to say no to him, so he'd get a unanimous vote. Since you mentioned, we're going to jump around a little bit, but you, since you just said social unrest... With the Mets, there were a couple of things uh, extremely interesting. One, his relationship with Tug McGraw I found fascinating. Uh, and then the other was, if you maybe want to talk about when Robert Kennedy was assassinated, what happened uh, as far as it related to the Mets playing a ball game. Uh, the, um, Tug McGraw was a flake, but thanks to Gil Hodges, as many pitchers, especially pitchers that I spoke to, from Claude Osteen uh, to even someone who you probably don't even remember or think of, Dave Baldwin. He was a, a sidearm sinker ball pitcher with the. Wa- he was a relief pitcher with the Washington Senators. You look at me like I'm very quizzical. Don't know who. <laughs> this guy oh, they know. They know. would would say this this Baldwin fella that if it was not for Gil Hodges who gave him a chance with the Senators. Uh, and he then was able to string it out and be in the majors for I think six or se- six or seven seasons. And he's still co- happily collecting a pension over there in Oregon. And he was a wonderful interview and spoke so wonderfully about Hodgers in the way that I guess if Tug McGraw was still alive when I wrote this book, he would have. McGraw. Most of the information there comes from McGraw's um, autobiography. Um, he was. A marvelously talented guy. I think in our era today, we would say he has ADD. He just couldn't focus. He just, um, and he was a wild man. You know, he once put on Willie Mace's uniform. Uh, it, this is a couple of years after Hodges died when, when Mace was acquired by the Mets. Put on blackface and went out, you know, before the game and was signing autographs <laughs> as if he was Willie Mace. So, but he spoke with such passion about Hodges and saying that he got him focused. And by the, by, um, the mid-70s, Tug McGraw had this wonderful pitch, a screwball, uh, that was his out pitch. He was probably one of the finest relief pitchers in baseball. Um, so uh, that was McGraw. 
and the uh, the Robert Kennedy assassination. Oh, the Kennedy assassination. This this um, this has been spoken about in a few places before, but uh, when Kennedy was killed, June nineteen sixty eight. Robert Kennedy, this is the, the senator from uh, New York who probably might have been the Democratic, most definitely would have been the Democratic uh, candidate for president that year. And he probably, I think, would have defeated Nixon. Uh, Humphrey lost to Nixon, and I guess the rest is Watergate. But um, Hodges, what happened was the Mets were playing, I believe it was in get where it was, but San Francisco, San Francisco, and uh, management wanted them to play on the day of the funeral. Uh, and they said as long as the game starts after uh, the uh, funeral is, is finished, it's okay. And the Mets players felt that a respect for Robert Kennedy, since he was a senator from New York, they didn't want to play. Well, Hodges took a stand with his players, and he said, no, they shouldn't play. And he stood up to um, uh, M. Donald Grant. Uh, you always have to wonder about people where their first name is just an initial. <laughs> and he also was Canadian, which is another deal. But Hodges was not afraid to stand up to, and this, this is ownership in this case, he said it's not right. But what he did tell the players was, just make sure none of you get caught in doing the wrong thing. I'm going to church to pay my respects uh, um, I th- suggest you do it too. And he, Hodges got a letter from uh, Robert Kennedy's widow thanking him for taking that position. And it was um, a stand. And, a, and the quotes from the players after that said, well, after that, that kind of unified the players because um, they felt, you know, they knew they had a leader, but they somehow bonded over that. Since you mentioned the word church, we're going to we'll step back a little bit in time. If you remember the story, great. If not, we'll, okay, people I'll, will get it from the book. Uh, but I loved it. In 1951, a young, I don't want to give it away, but a young girl named Doris. Yes, yes. That, that's it. That, uh, you know, uh, this was in Rockville Center, Long Island. Hodges was, Hodges really, when they asked him to do PR stuff, and it involved going to, to do something with kids, he had a really t- hard time saying no. He was just a very generous in terms of anything involving kids. He was signing autographs, doing some kind of promotional thing in Rockville Center, Long Island. And this little girl came up to him um, and um, wanted to uh, give him her cross that had been blessed by the Pope. And uh, he said he had one too, and he had given his to his father because his, uh, Hodges' father was a coal miner, a very dangerous profession. He wanted him to be safe. And this girl was like running off at the mouth a mile a minute. Not bad stuff, but just very animated and, and it must have been very <coughs> nervous meeting this great star. And it turned out years later, she could write as well as she could talk. It was Doris Curtis Goodwin, the famous historian and a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, very special. Uh, you know, that's one of the people, you can't do everything when you write a book. I would have loved to contact her, but somehow I, that fell through the cracks. So you can spend a lot of years writing a book and you still don't do everything you wanted to. And actually, just a question, because uh, you, you mentioned it, that uh, Joan Hodges, yes. Jill's widow, did not, did not want to cooperate. No. 
do, do you know why? I would say, you have to understand, I started to work on this book. I made up my mind. I decided to write it in the summer of 2005. I started to work on it in, in uh, 2006. So for now, it's getting published now. It's nine years. So what I did was I um, had some support from Gil Hodges, Jr., he helped me get these war records, did a brief interview with me where I picked up things like I found out Hodges smoked Marlboros. Uh, and I said, okay, I got the son in my camp. Let me see, go for the mother. She's a generation. Uh, and I called her up, and, and she didn't want to work with me. Uh, and now, looking back in retrospect, I think the nerve of me to call her up, I had never had a book published before. What was I was a CPA and a tax lawyer. And I'm calling her up and saying, I'm going to write a book about your husband, who was one of the transformative figures in baseball in the second half of the 20th century. And in a way, either she wanted privacy or she just most likely didn't think I was worthy of writing about him. And then a number of years later, I found out that uh, a couple of other writers who were really baseball writers, as opposed to me, who's more like, I would say, an amateur who kind of learned on the job, uh, and she worked with uh, them uh, to work on it, but you work around it. Um, it it's <laughs> there's an expression amongst biographers called "shoot the widow" because <laughs> if, 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 uh, if it's very tough because you want to get access, but people want privacy, and and I understand that. I, I really understand that. But to just give you an idea how tough it is, Gil Hodges has one sole surviving sibling, her, his sister Marge. I did some correspondence with her in the mail. I called her up on the telephone. She didn't do the internet. Her husband, the late husband, Hal did the internet. It took me like a year for her just to trust me. Then I flew out to Palm Desert, California, where she lived. We spent the day. I met her, her husband, and her son. They were talking about Gil Hodges. And she told me she had the letters that Gil Hodges wrote home during World War II. From, from from overseas. And I said to myself, oh my God, that's like, that's like <laughs> better than Jack Daniels. <laughs> and, you know, and her husband, Hal, I still remember him, we were leaving and he knew that's what I really wanted. And he said, Marge, let him have it. And she didn't trust it. <laughs> and we kept in touch. Two or three months later, I get a package in the mail Regular mail, no insurance, nothing. I open it up. She sent me the originals of the letters Gil Hodges wrote home in his college years and his World War II. I went there and I made triple photocopies of it. I got one in the fall. I sent it back to her FedEx, triple insured. I don't know. It's like, I said, Marjorie, this should either be in Quantico, which is where the Marines have uh, a uh, their museum and, and history uh, or maybe someday it should be in Cooperstown, but don't send these in the mail. <laughs> okay, so that's so that's how I got those, and I put those in the book. Those yeah. letters, those hadn't been seen anywhere else, and they will work to get those letters. Well, that's a good spot to turn it over to our uh, esteemed audience. Uh, who wants to lead off, Lee? Uh, Dave Baldwin has become a writer too. Yes, he wrote a wonderful book. Snape yes, Snape Jazz. He Dave Baldwin is a PhD in some kind of science that I don't even understand. Very smart <laughs> guy, uh, very articulate, 
And he really explained, he played for Hodges in Washington. For those who don't know, after Hodges uh, left playing, he went and directly went to be the manager of the Washington Senators for five years. And uh, those players, as opposed to the Mets players, the Mets players had been interviewed over and over and over again from the 69 season. But the Washington Senators players, if you got them, if they were the kind who liked to talk, they'd been waiting 40 years to tell someone how gifted Gil Hodges was, and Dave Baldwin was one did of them. You get, did you get Eddie Yost before he picked Yes, Eddie Yost. NYU? I, NY, uh, NY, Eddie Yost went to NYU. Eddie Yost was the third-base coach of the Mets, and he had been the, the third-base coach of the Washington Senators. Eddie Yost told me unequivocally the finest day in his professional career was when Hodges came to Washington because then Hodges liked him. They were similar. These were very uh, quiet, very gifted in their own way players. By the way, there's a trivia thing. There are only, I think, three people who led uh, the American League in walks in the 1950s. Can you name them? Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams, and Eddie Yost. Eddie Yost, if he played today in the Moneyball era, would be a multi-millionaire many times over. The guy just got on base. He was not a high average hitter, but he was perfect. So Eddie Yost was wonderful because he cleared up for me something that um, I had found a quote that Dick Young quoted Ted Williams during the 1969 series, and Ted Williams said, Hodges doesn't do anything. Once the game starts, Eddie Yost runs the club. He just sits there. And Eddie Yost explained to me, Hodges was a master. And this is the kind of thing when it comes to the Hall of Fame and sabermetrics and all of this crap. Okay? (laughs) He was a master at stealing signals from other teams. Carl Erskine told me there were times when Hodges would just call timeout. He would say, I got their sign. I know they're going to be bunting on this play. Do not throw. This is when there's a runner on first base. Don't throw over. I'm charging on the pitch. So because he was a master of stealing signs, he went out of his way to be very um, uh, closed, uh, very key. secretive, low-key, about giving signals. So, for example, Yost told me when Hodges smiled, he didn't tell me what it was, but that was some kind of signal to him, depending on the circumstances. And that's one of the reasons when you saw him in the dugout, you virtually you never saw him smile. So what that signal was, I don't know. Eddie Yost passed away subsequently. I could have, I could have interviewed Eddie Yost for hours or days, but I just had you know uh, uh, an hour to interview him. Yes. I don't know if he's uh, still alive or not, but did you have a chance to speak to Earl Weaver? Yes. Oh, man. (laughs) That was like, I thought he was going to jump through the telephone and pull out my throat. (laughs) He was still pissed that the Baltimore Warriors lost the 69 World Series. That's one of the things you learn when you speak to these guys. They are so competitive. And Earl Weaver was adamant that that Gil Hodges didn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Adam, he said, consider his managerial career. He had a losing record. That's out. I didn't want to say to him, you know, Earl, you told me that Joe Torre should be in, but did you know that Joe Torre, before he came to the Yankees in 1996, had lost 100 more games than he won in his managerial career? And Joe Torre knows it too. If you saw the induction ceremony last summer, the very first thing Joe Torre says is, if it wasn't for the New York Yankees, I wouldn't be here. 
Um, so Earl Weaver told me everyone in the you know everyone in the ballpark knew it, this is even a quote, but he confirmed that everyone in the ballpark knew that that ball had clearance. But and he didn't want to argue it too strenuously because he'd been thrown out of the game the day before, and that might have also cost Baltimore because there was a play at the end that probably the Mets lucked out. It was probably J.C. Martin was running. Uh, uh, you know, in the baseline, not out of the baseline, uh, on the very uh, important play at the end of the game. So I spoke with Earl Weaver, and what happens once these guys like Earl Weaver get in the Hall of Fame, what happens is the people up there either sit in one of two places, and this is part of why I think Gil Hodges isn't in the Hall of Fame. Either the managers all sit together or the players sit together, and you're one or the other. Heavens to Betsy, if some of these people would say you evaluated someone as the rule says on their overall contribution to baseball. So when I said to someone like Earl Weaver, what I said to Reggie Jackson, I said, could you tell me, you know, uh, which person hit the most home runs in their playing career that also managed a World Series team? You know, they tell me that. What, what does that matter? I said, well, it shows you someone was talented as a player and as a manager. Earl Weaver didn't want to hear that because Earl Weaver never played in the major leagues. And I make a point at the end of the book. A lot of people don't know it, but in that famous All-Star game in 1970, the one where Pete Rose made himself into a missile and ruined Roy Fossey's career, who would have been a very good catcher, I think. Um, And Roy Fossey is probably still upset about that, but... Hodges was the manager of the winning team, the National League team. And if you read the book, I won't get into it, as part of that interview with Coyle Osteen, who was a pitcher on that, he gave me the, the strategy Hodges used during that game. And that final play, if Hodges was not the manager of the National League team, it never would have been set up. The, the National League never would have won. I mean, he picked the guy that hit the ball, Jim Hickman, as an alternative to be in the All-Star game because Jim Hickman, who a lot of people don't know, was with the Mets. He was pretty much a journeyman player, but in 1969 he had his career year. And Hodges said, let's give him a chance, and he put him on the All-Star team. Who didn't he pick on the All-Star team that year? Billy Williams. I don't think Billy Williams ever became... I'm not sure. I never. I didn't, I didn't interview Billy Williams, but... Um, he probably didn't win points, but he figured <laughs> Billy Williams is in the All-Star game every year. Let's give Hickman a chance. But um, my point was, when they came out to give the lineup cards in that 1970 All-Star game, you know, there are slightly different rules for an All-Star game than a regular season game in terms of using the pitchers and how many innings, etc. Uh, um, we've asked a lot of questions. Gil Hodges just didn't ask any and he had been in All-Star games, played in All-Star games six or seven times already. Earl Weaver, as I said, had never been. So this probably precludes someone would ask about the Hall of Fame. What happens is everyone brings their own prejudices and, and people just support the guys who they either were teammates with because that's who they loved and cared about and went to war with or people they were friends with. And unfortunately, at this point, Hodges has... The guys who would really go to bat for Hodges... Pee-wee Reese, Duke Snyder, Campanella, Robinson, Don Drysdale love Gil Hodges. They're all gone. So uh, um, not this election, but the one before, uh, Tommy Lasorda made a very valiant effort to try and get Hodges in. But um, what happens in these meetings is, the in these uh, committees is 
there are eight players in it who are in the Hall of Fame and eight non-players. Athletes I've learned writing this book, when they get together, will form, and they don't even have to discuss it, they will immediately know which player was the greatest of the group, and that person is almost like leading the charge. So that's probably a long answer to Earl Weaver, but Earl Weaver just set me off. I hear that. and He was a great, great manager and deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, but he couldn't cut Gil Hodges a break. Yes? By the way, um, I was always curious about those people with the initial for the first name. Yes. And I was told that they're all juniors who hate their fathers. It could be. <laughs> now, now a lot of women writers do that because they don't want people to know they're um, uh, women. But go ahead. Um, also, um, when I was a kid, I used to do the baseball cards. I just noticed that he just had these really intense blue eyes. Yes. Was that ever mentioned? I mean, when when he was when he was playing. Well, I mentioned it in the book. That's in the in the in the uh, prologue. Um, I uh, people in terms of his physical characteristics noted his huge hands, from what I read, and the fa- some people would call him Mooney because his skin was very light. You know, he didn't. He was one of these people that famous Woody Allen line. Uh, he doesn't the uh, tanny strokes. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you had a question. I was going to say, the, the World Series, the World Series share guy was Louis Olmo. Yes, yes, that's it, Louis Olmo. That was the one. Thank you. The name escaped me. Shame on me. Harvey, what took you so long? But <laughs> <laughs> Olmo was not there in 55. No. Uh, that was probably... 49. <laughs> 49. 49. E- either one. Uh, Gil came up as a catcher yes he he came up this is the interesting thing and again something that's really not captured Hodges was a shortstop in American Legion ball his team his high school team did not have a team American Legion ball he was a high school he was a shortstop and so ultimately yes he came up Branch Rickey made him into a catcher he saw his huge hands how quick his reflexes were and they had Pee Wee Research short. They moved him to catcher. And then in 1948, Roy Campanella was called up from the minor league system. And Roy Campanella instantly became the best catcher in, in maybe, in not just then, but maybe in baseball history. One of the great, all-time greats. And they moved Hodges to first base. And why he was so good at first base was he brought a shortstop's mentality mentality to the game. One of the people I interviewed now, one of the first interviews I did, and he's long gone, was Jack Lang, who was a major writer for decades with um, Newsday. And he told me that Gil Hodges was the best right-handed fielding first baseman he ever saw. And he said he was the best fielding first baseman he ever saw until he saw Keith Hernandez. Did Hodges have inkling that the team was moving? Yes. I mean, because Zimmer and Reese, didn't they have a bad... I forget who was who, but Zimmer said, we're going to move, and Reese said, we're not. That I don't know about. But but, but what was Hodges? Hodges, Hodges, I think, was somewhat... He was so ingrained because of his wife, and also because he... Just love Brooklyn. I think I have one story about where he gives this mailman a lift after a wake that's just very touching. But he loved Brooklyn, and he knew the team moving to Los Angeles was going to be a huge headache for him for his family uh, because he would be really separated them realistically. He, he already knew what was going to happen. Um, and uh, I, I captured, there's, uh, the guy I interviewed for that was, I think it was, was Walsh, who was, um, had been... 
O'Malley's representative on the West Coast when he first started to negotiate the deal to move the team. And he told me none of the other players really cared all that much of the star players. But for Hodges, it was everything. And he told me that the look on Hodges' face when Hodges realized uh, they were going to move was a cross between, I think I say in the book, shock and horror. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, do you think, uh, considering that he got such a low uh, vote in the Hall of Fame uh, uh, election... Uh, this last time yeah, around. Do you think, is he forever foreclosed? From no, no. Um, he, what, what people forget is Ron Santo once got 5% or less of the ballot and had to be reinstated. What I think is going on in... I've had conversations over the years with a lot of the people at the Hall of Fame. Jeff Idelson, I, um, some of the people helped me in terms of research for the book. Um, I think that the people on a day-to-day basis who work in Cooperstown, they all really think that Hodger should be in the Hall of Fame. The problem comes up, he's now grouped with a, with a group of people, excellent people, Outstanding ball players. Minnie Minoso just passed away. Right. Minnie Minoso was one of the best players in the 1950s from everything. I never saw him, obviously, but from what I read and heard. Uh, and these people had huge support, and they wanted to give it to one of them. And here, Jim Cott is coming. Jim, Jim Cott was a great pitcher, great fielding pitcher. Took decades. I mean, he had some superb years with Minnesota. Uh, Tony Oliva was one of the most feared hitters. But they didn't elect anyone. And I think part of their logic was, and you can tell who they want from who's picked on the committee. Gil Hodges had no advocate on this committee. Ferguson Jenkins is going to vote for Gil Hodges. <laughs> Ferguson Jenkins, I didn't interview him for the book, don't say, you know, but he probably has a mentality like Earl Weaver. If it wasn't for Gil Hodges, you know, Ferguson Jenkins figures in 1969 the Cubs would have won. So I wouldn't give up on it, but. And unless either he, Sandy Koufax, or Nolan Ryan, or Tom Seaver, or Joe Torrey step up for him and are in that room and say, enough already. And just so you understand the, the difficulty of why people get upset about this, Gil Hodges received in the 15 years on the baseball writer's ballot, he got 3,010 votes. Tony Oliva, another great player, he got uh, about 2,100. The next was Maury Wills, about 1,600. Jim Cott, somewhere in that range, 1,600, 1,700. Minnie Minoso, somewhere in that range. But you can see the writers over that 15 years, Hodges was the one they felt should be in the Hall of Fame. So once it goes to the committee, it's no longer so objective. Rod Carew was on this committee. Who, part of the reason no one was elected is because Rod Carew couldn't divide himself in half. Who's Rod Carew going to vote for? Jim Carter, Tony Oliva. They were both his teammates. Who's Don Sutton going to vote for? He came to the Dodgers after Hodges was gone. He's going to vote for Maury Wills. That was his teammate. Um, Roland Heyman was on it. Who's he going to vote for? He's going to vote for Minnie Minoso. And I think there was one other guy who was supportive of uh, Richie Allen who was a feared feared power hitter. He was he was like his generation version of Jim Rice. When he came up to the plate, you just if you were rooting for the other team, you would like nervous because he could hit a home run just so 
I wouldn't give up on it. I think he's still got a chance. You never know what happens. But it's it's a hard road to hope. But isn't I don't know uh, with the with the veterans committee, but with the writers committee, if you get less than five percent, you're off. You're off. But you know what? These rules are all. Uh, Santo was off. Santo was off the ballot, but he was reinstated at some point, um, and he got elected by the veterans committee. Um, what I think is their logic is they want to vote in someone who's alive so they can come up and that person can have their moment. Wouldn't it have been nice if Minnie also lived long enough he would be up there over the summer? It'd be nice. Jim Cott should have his moment. Uh, Tony Oliva. Um, and that's where Hodges dying young really worked against him because out of sight, out of mind. And But I, I will tell you by any objective standard, if you look at his playing career and his managerial career, there is no way you cannot say that this guy should not be in the Hall of Fame. So I could go on for two days. Yes, in the green shirt. And we'll take so um, a question not about Hodges, but about you. Um, you said you were a tax attorney. Yes. Um, what drove you, what kind of empowered you to make that leap from being a tax attorney to a baseball writer? I understand <coughs> the connection with Hodges. Right. But that's still different than... Then, then taking a you know a, a left turn on your career to yes. what you do now. Um, uh, let's just say that um, you should read my first book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all I'll say. It's still, still in print. It's still in print. It's uh, <laughs> you can get it from Harper Collins. An award-winning book, by uh, the way. Yeah, okay. It's just this, <laughs> today's about Hodges, but read. I, I, you can just Google it and read some excerpts. Doe. It's so, called Doe. D O U G H. I, I am blessed amongst men in many respects, and that allowed me to do this. And you know what? I could have done a lot worse with dedicating myself to this, because hopefully younger people know something about him. Yes. Someone asked him that question, and you know what he said? He said all five of them, uh, DeRosha and uh, Alston and um, the, the others, Dressen, uh, and but in reality, the one he probably conditioned himself after more than any others was Walter Austin. This this kind of quiet, I'm not saying much, but everyone's a little bit afraid of me because I'm very tall, big and powerful and intimidating. Uh, and uh, and that keeps everyone in line. So you I think shot shot and I let out but yes. I uh, I'm thank you. Uh, but um, so I'd say that's that's the answer. The question here and then here and there. Yeah, uh, more in terms of the personality of Gill, he was very reserved and guarded for the most part. I'm just curious, his relationship with the media, he doesn't seem to be the kind of figure that the media would gravitate to, but they treated him with tremendous respect, didn't they? Um, they that's funny, it depended on the writer and the age of the writer. The guys who knew him from long before, from his Dodger days, that went back to you talking about your Arthur Daly's, your Jack Lang's, your Dick Young's, um, guys like that, they respected him, um, Red Smith, uh, and um, they liked him. As a person, they liked him. And they were, would be brave enough because of the relationship, I think, to ask him pointed questions. 
The younger writers, they just didn't get him. They didn't get his humor necessarily. The, the ones who came up in the, in the 60s, um, he seemed a bit corny to them. Uh, but he would answer the questions, but he, as I say in the book, he could give you a look that if you didn't really know him well, could be very off-putting, and then he would come up like a minute later with a joke, and some of these younger writers would already be scared and out of the room. So with a lot of things with Hodges, it's not altogether clear, and I think the relationship with the writers... Some of them in Washington loved him. Um, Russ White, who worked, worked for the third biggest newspaper in Washington, loved him. Hodges used to let him work out with the team. Uh, Bob Addy loved Hodges. Um, and um, the main writer for the Washington Post. Shirley, Shirley, Shirley Povich. He, 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 I don't know if he loved him, but he definitely liked him and had respect for him and thought he was a great player. So, um, who is next? You. Uh, I, I thought of this when, when Jay brought up the Doris first. Goodwin story, which you elaborated on. There's, there's two two young Brooklynites. There are well, one's dead and one's old now. They became big owners in, in the business of sports. One of them, Jerry Reinsdorf, and the other one, Al Davis. And I know they both grew up Dodger fans. Um, in any of your extensive research, do you, you think they ever either of those two gentlemen happen to cross paths with with Gil, either as Doris Kearns kind of young, young fan age, or later when they had their um, you know, when they had their successes as, as owners of the, the Raiders and the Bulls and the White Sox, mm-hmm. respectively. Reisdorf, maybe, because he was in um, baseball. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Davis, uh, Davis, I can tell you, he wouldn't have been Gil Hodges kind of guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I don't know about him, but it's possible Reisdorf, but I didn't come across any interaction. But you know what? That's one of the things you learn when you write a book. There could be. A person as public as Gil Hodges, he had so many interactions with sure. thousands of sure, people sure. that what I cover in a book, and even there have been five books written about Gil Hodges. This yeah. is the fifth one. You can put them all together, and there's still stuff to be written. But that's a good good question, but I don't know what the well, answer well, is. I, met, I saw Jerry Reinsdorf at winter meetings by an elevator bank, and I said, Native Brooklyn? He said, yeah, you? I said, no, conceived in Brooklyn. And we laughed, and that was it. But I'll, okay. Next time, we'll next time yeah. ask him. It'll be interesting. Uh, yes. In the brawls between the Giants and the Dodgers, where was Hodges? Hodges, this goes to another reason why he's not in the Hall of Fame, and this is a quote from Leo DeRosha. He just, Leo DeRosha basically wished that Hodges would just get into a fight with somebody. He would have liked to have seen that because Hodges was considered to be one of the most powerful men of his era. Uh, and in fights, I didn't find one case of in a baseball fight of Gil Hodges throwing a punch at somebody. He was always the guy breaking up the fights. He was, and I'd say the one I detailed the most in the book was. Um, Don Drysdale threw at a player named jo- Logan, who was uh, Johnny Logan. Logan was a wild man from what I read. And uh, Logan had the attitude, I can take on anybody because Eddie Matthews, big, strong Eddie Matthews, is going to come and bail me out. <laughs> so uh, Logan was going to go after Drysdale, and Matthews got there first and was pummeling uh, Drysdale on the mound and I know this because I read the contemporary accounts in the Times and in Eddie Matthews' autobiography he speaks about it and what Eddie Matthews said was I'm there, I'm beating the hell out of uh, Drysdale suddenly I have feel my ankles are gripped by someone and Gil Hodges took Eddie Matthews like he was was a uh, a um, 
wheelbarrow and pull them off <laughs> of um, Drysdale, really literally kicking at, at Hodges and brought him over to third base. And the legend says, he said, you should stay here and don't come back. But I guarantee you, Matthews didn't go back to the, to the fight. Whether Hodges really said that or not, I don't know. But he probably get the, me- the message across, don't go near Drysdale. Drysdale was roommates with Hodges. Hodges felt very close with Drysdale. And um, it, Matthews is one of the toughest guys. So if Hodges ever wanted to make a reputation, he could have just clocked Matthews right there. Um, and there's a way to make it, but that wasn't his style. Um, you know, there's a there's a huge macho thing amongst these guys. I mean, Bill Dickey, I only read it when I read his uh, there's a book, a nice, uh, I forget who it was, one of the Sabre people wrote a really good book, and they mentioned it. Bill Dickey once didn't like the way some Washington Senators player slid into, into him during a game. Bill Dickey was a catcher of the Yankees in the 1930s. He followed this guy to the dugout, and on his way there, he just clocked him and broke his, broke his jaw. He was suspended for a month. Carl Reynolds was the man he punched. Carl Reynolds, yeah. We're, uh, we're going to get to your question, yes. and your question, just for, uh, for the time constraint, we're going to have to say farewell first to the podcast audience. So, t- Mort, I would like, to, just for them again, the book... Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life, published by the University of Nebraska Press, written by a master, Mord Zachter. Jay, thank you. Thank you.